this thing on. Put that on. Okay. Well, because we spent a decade in John, everyone thought they were already pros, so that's why there's a few less people here. They uh, they all let me know that they didn't need it. They didn't need the study. So uh, we'll, we'll we'll dive into it anyway. Uh, let's pray, and then we will get started. Uh, Lord, we come to you now, and we are thankful for this time uh, on a Wednesday in the middle of the week to be able to stop down and consider your word. We pray that you would guide us in it as we um, consider the last of the Gospels tonight, um, that you would continue to give us uh, wisdom, discernment, insight, um, attention to details that we just otherwise wouldn't have. Um, Lord, we are uh, thankful for the power of Christ in us, for the work of the Holy Spirit to enable us to have any understanding at all. And so because of your work and because of our need, we, we humble ourselves before you tonight. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as always, I want to let y'all, let everybody know that this is one of the few Bible studies where the point is not to go deeper into the book necessarily, which is a little backwards when you think about a Bible study, but these are bird's eye view studies. These are overview where we're zooming way out to get a big picture view that will help us during those times where we're going to dig deeper in the study. And so we've got, we've gone through uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And tonight we will be starting John part one. So I wanted to, rather than having a handful of refresher questions, I kind of just wanted to ask one big general question. Uh, and my big general question to kick us off is, what have we learned thus far in the Gospels about who Jesus is and who Jesus is not? No pressure, but if you can't answer that, I've completely failed as a teacher. <laughs> Thus far, in the Gospels, what have we learned about who Jesus is and who Jesus is not? not a he is not a nationalist. This is true. What else have we learned? He cares for the vulnerable. Yes. You could also answer this question by saying, what have we found Jesus to be concerned with in what he shares? Who he is, who he isn't, what he's concerned with. There's thousands of possible answers. I'll accept any one of them. He's the Christ. Now, did he say that or did someone say it about him? Nice. Healer. Son of God. Remember our titles? Does anyone remember what was he in Matthew? Son of David. And why is that? Yeah, because Matthew was the most Jewish of the Gospels. What about in Mark? Son of... What did you say? Man, yes. Because in Mark, we saw that he was man, but he was not merely man. So in Matthew, the approach was son of what? I'm just waiting for one of y'all to say, a gun. <laughs> son of a gun. Yeah, I'm just waiting. I can see it. The ten of y'all are thinking it. So in Matthew, he was son of David. Mark, he was son of Mark. Matthew, Mark. Luke, he was son of. 
Adam. Yeah. And so what, why was he son of Adam in Mark? Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Yeah, yeah, Luke. Yeah, why was he son of Adam in Luke? What's the difference? Luke's genealogy, he went all the way back to Adam. Why? Yeah, he, he was in Yeah, he was the investigative reporter and he was wanting to get all the facts he could and what he he didn't stop like um because Luke was not Jewish and so he was he wouldn't have stopped with the um Jewish heritage. He actually traced it all the way back to um the Adamic heritage. And so tonight in John, so in Matthew we considered Jesus is the son of David, Mark, Jesus is the son of man, Luke, Jesus is the son of Adam, and in John, we're going to consider Jesus as the son of God. Son of God. So it's normal to have questions about who Jesus is. I mean, when we have conversations, that's a lot of, if we're having an evangelistic conversation, much of it revolves around who Jesus is. As a church, when we dig in on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or in conversations in life group, a lot of what we're talking about is who Jesus is. And so much of our study has been dedicated to this question because the answer to the question is what Jesus spent a lot of his time uh, talking about and considering. So look at John 7, verse 10. John seven ten says, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. From these few verses, what do we know about opinions concerning Jesus during Jesus' time? Yeah, they were different. They varied greatly. During Jesus' own time, the opinions about him varied greatly. It wasn't everyone thought this at first, and then everyone thought this next, and then after he died, everyone thought something different. From the get-go, Different people had different opinions and thoughts and reactions to what Jesus said and who he claimed that he was in particular. It's worth noting, um, the reason I I go into that is because um, John's gospel, all four gospels focus on Jesus' identity, but John does so especially. And so I want us to consider that even after Jesus' time on earth, opinions have differed and people have said different things throughout the ages really. Um, about who Jesus is, or who people thought he was, or after lots of research, who we say he is. I mean, we've kind of talked about how groups of scholars, one scholar can do an in-depth study and come away with the, the, the unquestionable conclusion that Jesus was a philanthropist. And then another scholar can do a full study, full in-depth, and come away with the objective opinion that Jesus 
was a civic leader. And, then another, and, you know, and so we can, we can go down the line and see everyone has their biases. And so we have to go back to the source. And that's what's been good about this gospel study is that we're going back to, um, well, what was said at the time? What did Jesus say about himself? Um, books have been written about um, the deity of Jesus. Uh, lots and lots of books. And just two examples I want to share. There was one book written within the last few decades maybe in the 80s, and it was a book that argued that Jesus didn't really become God until the time of Athanasius in the 4th century. A lot of y'all know about, you've heard Ben share about Athanasius and Arius, and there was an early church controversy during the time of our patriarchs, and Athanasius argued about the godness of Christ because Arius said there was a time that he was not. And if there was a time where Jesus was not, then there was a time that he was not God. There's no way that he could be God if there was a time where Jesus wasn't. So this author says, well, it wasn't until Athanasius in like, I think it was 386 or something right around there. It wasn't until Athanasius that Jesus really became God because Athanasius technically won the argument over Arius. So that's one view. Others have speculated that it was only after Jesus' death that Paul, in fact, deified Jesus. And the argument, we've talked about this a little bit, but I want to go a little deeper. The argument was that um, the Rome's culture was full of idolatry. It was polytheistic. You could, there, were, there was no shortage of gods. And so the theory goes that Paul deified Jesus because he needed a stronger product to market Christianity in the competitive Greek religion market. I'm going to say that again. That Paul deified Jesus because he needed a stronger product to market Christianity in the competitive Greek religion market. And so people will say, well, Jesus never said he was God, and he was just a good guy, and he was moral, and he was upright. He's a great leader. He's a people person. He was a a manager. He won people over. He brought people together. But really, it was Paul's idea to turn him into God and take this whole thing to the nations. These are like scholars have spent their careers trying to establish these things. So that's why it's important for us to never stray from the text. The text tells us what we need to know. And for those who go to the text and create different conclusions, we need to know what truth is because there's no shortage of who people think Jesus is out there. I mean... Watch PBS. I think once a month there's a new documentary that someone spent lots and lots of money on explaining how Jesus was really this or Jesus was really that or he didn't really say this. Well, we have what Jesus said. We have Scripture breathed out by God, profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that we could be equipped to do the work Jesus wants us to do. So, look at um, John chapter 20. I, I mentioned all four Gospels focus on who Jesus is. John especially focuses on who Jesus is. And the purpose of John's gospel is found in 20. Now, don't look at your Bibles. Can anyone remember from our decade in the book of John what the purpose of the book of John is? Believe. Believe. You may know these things so that you may believe. Look at chapter 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. It's interesting, the book of John um, has 
records less of the miracles and healings and things than the other ones, less of the signs. Um, but the book of John is actually often referred to as the book of signs because of how it utilizes the signs that are there to communicate the godness of Jesus Christ. And so when we read this verse, uh, these two verses, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What are some natural questions we might ask of that passage? What are the other signs? What else? Where were they written? What else? These, yeah. What's so special about these signs? That word these is a big word, and we're going to explore that a little bit this week and next week. Our outline for this week and next week is this. We're going to look at three particular things. The first one we'll get to tonight, the next two we'll get to next week. Our outline is what John says we should believe, what the, what the gospel of John, which includes what Jesus says, that we should believe. So what we should believe, why we should believe, and the result of believing. That's going to be our focus for this week and next. What we should believe, why we should believe, and the results of believing. So the first part, what we should believe, first, we should believe who the Messiah is. We should believe who the Messiah is. If you're taking notes, that'd be a really important thing to write down. We should believe who the Messiah is. Dever has a quote. He says, one of the most interesting parts of these early records of Jesus' ministry, particularly John's gospel, is the strength of the opposition to Jesus. The strength of the opposition to Jesus. So, we should believe who the Messiah is. And to understand the importance of that, we're going to dive in a little bit and look at the strength of the opposition to Jesus. So look at 2.12. On each of these, we're going to do what we've done in previous weeks, and we will fly through the book, taking just a few brief seconds to look at these verses to get snapshot, 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 to be kind of understand this big picture that's made up of all these snapshots. So in 2.12, this is probably the longest section that I'll read, um, 2.12 through 25, but I want you guys to begin to see the strength of the opposition to Jesus. In 12, it says, After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Remember, this temple is the sec- during the second temple period. We learned that 
as we made our transition from the Old Testament to the New. So this is the rebuilt temple, the second temple period. And it wasn't as amazing and majestic as the first temple, but they were still pretty darn proud of it. And so they're saying, ha, it took 46 years to build this, and you're going to tear it down and raise it up in three days. They have no idea what he's saying. They don't understand at all what he's alluding to. Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in a man. So we see this perspective of Jesus knowing what is in a man, knowing that there's very real opposition to the ministry that he's going to be bringing about, knowing the questions that would come when he would do the things like he had just done. Look at 641. In 641, uh, the setting here is he has fed the 5,000, and then he utilizes that, explaining that he is the bread of life. And in 641, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. So we see opposition. We see Jesus is aware of the opposition. Here we see grumbling. Look over at verse 66. He shared in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying because he's just said, he's talked about whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood. He's talking about the dynamics between the temple, eternal realities, his body, the, how he's, he's going to die for them. And, and um, it's a part of scripture where people in the, in the earlier days after the death of Christ tried to say that Christians were cannibals um, and that because we eat body and drink blood and vampires, all kinds of crazy stuff was, was invented in those early, that first century. But then it says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling, the same way as the others, about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. There's opposition, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So we're not talking about the 12 here. We're talking about a larger group that were listening and following. And at this point, a number of them turned back. Because he's saying, I am the Son of God, and no one can come to me unless it's granted by the Father. And the flesh is of no help to you. This is a spiritual matter. And so he is um, he's saying things that are turning the world upside down. And many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now look at 7.5. For not even his brothers believed in him. So even his own family was opposing him. Look at 7.12. Um, 
And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. And look at 848. Eight forty-eight says, uh, the, "Then the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan, and you have a demon?'" <laughs> so things are as we progress in the story. There's a progression in the opposition. Not only do they say you're a fraudulent foreigner, they're saying, "Aren't you a Samaritan?" Meaning, are you even? Are you sure you're actually one of us who you're saying you are? So they're saying, you're a fraudulent foreigner, and, and you probably have a demon, right? I mean, they're asking him, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? It's almost like tagging the and you have a demon on there. Just, it's, 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 they're calling the Son of God a demonic, fraudulent foreigner. And then in 1020, look at verse 19. There was again... He's just taught that he's the good shepherd. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon. They're not going to ask, are we right in saying you have a demon? They're just coming out with it. He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? There's, there's confusion. There's opposition. And here they not only say he has a demon, but that he has in fact just completely lost his mind. So not everybody who heard Jesus' teaching was so blown away that they couldn't wait to follow him. A lot of opposition existed as soon as the words came out of Jesus' mouth, the reason you need to understand this is because there are people who will characterize Jesus as, he never meant for people to, 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 to fall all over themselves for him. He never meant to, to he, wasn't a, he was just a good guy, and all this stuff was made up later. No. He said the words, and they looked Jesus Christ in the eyes and said, you're demonic, you've lost your mind, you're a fraudulent foreigner. These were the immediate responses. So now I want us to look at what they tried to do in their opposition. So there was opposition, but it wasn't just verbal opposition. They tried to do things in their opposition. Look at 7.30. These are like the, the part two of some, a lot of what we've already read. John 7.30 says, uh, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because the hour had not yet come. It's interesting if you just read the whole thing. It takes about an hour and a half to read John. You see this, we're going to, let's get him. Kind of almost cartoonish. Like, it's not time. You just can't get him. He'll, he'll slip out. He, they won't be able to, it just didn't work out. Because it wasn't God's time. God's time would come. God's time was certain. But this is one, an example of, there was opposition. And it says, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because the hour had not yet come. They weren't sitting there saying, uh, we'd like to arrest him, but the hour has not yet come. They couldn't arrest him, and we know why, because the hour had not yet come. So, we see the opposition, we see what they said. Now we know that in their opposition, they tried to, to arrest him. Uh, it says, uh, yet many of the people said, um, uh, uh, people believed in him, and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So people are saying, well, we're expecting a Christ, and we're expecting signs, and this guy seems to fit the part. And then others are saying, no, we're going to arrest him. And then it says in 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. 
Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that, he will not find, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean? There's confusion. They don't understand what he's saying, but he's saying uh, truth. And then in 820, 8.20, it says, uh, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because the hour had not yet come. So yet again, they're trying to arrest him. And then in 8.59, we see, uh, So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This, that's the, Ben's described this as the revival that went bad, where they're, they're literally filling out their cards, and he says, oh, there's some more to it, and they put down the little pencils that no one can sharpen, and they pick up rocks to kill him with. They sought to, they picked up stones to throw at Jesus. So some in their opposition were confused, some in their opposition tried to arrest him, some in their opposition tried to murder him. And then 11.8 says, The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? So his disciples are picking up on, um, when you did stuff last time, they were going to kill you, and now you're going to do more stuff. Are you, they're uh, they're going to kill you. They're going to try to kill you. And so they're picking up on this opposition. Um, this is him going back to heal Lazarus. And so they're like, are you sure you want to go back there? Maybe not the best idea. And so he goes back. We know the story. He heals Lazarus. And 1153, it says, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. In response to this healing... Um, in response to this raising from the dead, many of the Jews, therefore, in 45, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We're going to come back to that verse. It's a very important one. But the point is, from that day forth, they made plans to put him to death. And finally, look at 12, 10 through 11. Not only did they make plans to put Jesus to death because of the miracles he performed and what he gained in bringing Lazarus from death to life. In verse 9 it says, When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, on whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So the opposition was so strong that it wasn't just, uh, we got to stop the miracles, it's let's kill the miracle worker and let's hide the evidence by killing the one who was raised from the dead. That's how, I want us to really understand the context of how focused they, they were on keeping their Jewishness the way they wanted their Jewishness to be on keeping their organization, their institution, the thing that they knew, the thing that church, the way they wanted it to be, even though part of their, their institution is the prophecies that explain what a Messiah was going to come and do. They were so focused on not wanting the change to come about that they were willing to um, try to arrest Jesus, plot against him, make plans to kill him, and then not only murder the miracle worker, 
who had done these healings, but hide the evidence by murdering Lazarus, who had already been brought from death to life. This is the Jewish response. The, the leaders of the Jews were responding to Jesus in this way. One, chapter 1, verse 11 says, He came to that which was his own, his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Dever notes, he says, in short, the ire that accrues around Jesus in John's gospel appears to result from how he described his relationship with God. Jesus presented himself as the unique son of God. If you're writing down in your notes something that's important, that's important. Jesus presented himself as the son of God, and that was the source of a lot of the opposition. So there was opposition, but there was also recognition. So we've seen with clarity the opposition that existed and what resulted in the opposition, the things they tried to do about it. But there was also recognition of what he was saying. Look at 134. It's interesting. In uh, John, a ton of the recognition comes really, really quickly in the first chapter. Uh, first, the, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. I mean, that, that's all we'll get to. Over time, we realize that's very much about Jesus. Um, and then we see in 134... Um, we see uh, John, and John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. This is after he's baptized. Um, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So from early on, there was opposition, but from early on, there was also recognition. The difference between those who opposed and those who recognized was the work of God. Notice, how did John know? He said, God told me. God opened my eyes to the fact that this is his son. Again, in 149, you see Jesus calling um, Philip and Nathaniel. And in 149, Nathaniel says to him in 48, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. You can imagine, I mean, either I'm talking to a stalker or the Son of God. You know, this could be weird for us if we were like, I saw you at the 7-Eleven the other day, drinking that Slurpee. Jesus indicates, I saw you when you didn't think I saw you. And, 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 and the response here is wonderful. Look at this response. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He realizes in engaging Christ and in hearing Christ, he realizes you are the Son of God. There's no opposition here. He realizes this is the Son of God. And then in 3.16, which I think most of us probably know, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So, his only son. Jesus is referred to as his only son. And so, um, I, one question that I have, what does it mean he did not send his son into the world to, to condemn the world, but to save the world? Why did Jesus not come to condemn the world? Yes, yes. Perfect, perfect answer. Yeah, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because the world already stood condemned according to the law. 
the law rendered everyone worthy of death because of the wrath of God towards unrighteousness because the unrighteousness suppresses the truth, as it says in Romans 1.18. So he didn't come to the world to condemn the world because the world already stood condemned as it stood. So there were some who recognized Jesus, and there, was, there wasn't a lack of clarity for the Jews. It's interesting. Um, Jesus was very particular about who he is. So when you hear these arguments about, well, that's not what he intended, just go back and read what he said. Read the first-hand accounts of what Jesus said about who he was, and you'll see, in fact, yeah, he very clearly said he was the Son of God. He was not misunderstood. It wasn't people trying to prop him up as a, sort of a puppet king to do what they wanted as a Messiah. He was very clear about who he was. He did not leave it to others to figure out when he was gone. It's important for us to understand that about our Lord. He did not leave it up to others to figure it out once he was gone. It wasn't like a superhero that tried to do some cool things, and when he was gone, people looked back saying, do you know who that was? He was very clear about who he said he was. Um, in 525, he says, uh, so we see those two examples of people recognizing him, but in 525, I mean, it's very clear. Um, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He's, he's referring to his own authority, and he's, he's, it's interesting because he doesn't just say, the Father has life in himself, and so the Son has life in the Father. He says the Father has life in himself, is granted it that the Son has life in himself. So that statement is a huge statement about the godness of Jesus, that by God's design, Jesus has life in himself. It would be, interest, it would be normal or maybe more believable or reasonable to say God has life in himself and Jesus has life in God, but he says God has life in himself and I as the Son, Jesus have life in myself because of God. And so he's describing his authority that he has from God in 525 and 526. And then over in 17.1, go ahead and turn over to 17.1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Come glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. There was an interesting way in which they could glorify one another because of the godness of Jesus. And he very clearly stated that he was the Son of God and that he would glorify his Father in a unique way because of that. Um, and there was not a lack of clarity for the Jews. The Jews weren't, like, there was confusion, but there wasn't a lack of clarity because you see their response in 19.7. You see 19.7, it says... Uh, you know, Jesus has been delivered to be crucified at this point. The time has come. And in 19.7, um, well, Pilate says, Behold the man, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said, um, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And listen to how the Jews answered. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. So in case y'all are wondering if there was still a bunch of conclusion by that point, the Jews were clear. We have a law. By that law, he's going to die because he says he's the Son of God. The only reason they would say he wouldn't have to die is if, in fact, they believed he was the Son of God. So to be clear, Jesus himself associates himself with God in his very nature. You consider all the I am statements. I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. What's, what are some other I am statements? I am the bread of life. I am 
the way, the truth, and the life. Y'all think of any others? The gate, yes. Any others? Living water, yeah. Good shepherd. So a good Jew during this time, all those I am statements, I, I want us to understand context here. Because when he makes these I am statements, a good Jew, a trained Jew, which a normal person who gathered weekly for the Sabbath, listened to the reading of the Scriptures, had memorized. I mean, a, a, a young Jewish uh, boy would have memorized um, the majority of, the, of uh, the, or not majority, I think all f- five books of the New Testament um, by, does anyone remember what age that was? Like surprisingly young, yeah. So they would have known, like like we each have at least a handful of verses. Maybe these guys would have memorized like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, like by early childhood. And so we got to understand when he makes these I am statements, um, all of all of these statements would have prompted the Hebrew, um, the Hebrew mind to recall. Yahweh's words to Moses by the burning bush, when he says, I am who I am, they would have gone there like that. Like when I stand up here and say, for God so loved the world that when all of you in your mind go, he gave his only begotten son, like that. When they hear those I am statements, the Hebrew mind would have gone immediately to Yahweh explain, um, saying, I am who I am um, to Moses by the burning bush. So there's a heated exchange in 858. I may have already read part of it. There's so many verses that I go, I'm going to here. 858. So the Jews would have thought, he's saying he's Yahweh. He is referring to himself as Yahweh. Those are Yahweh's words, and he's acting like they are his words. And in 858, um, he said, Before Abraham was, I am 858, uh, so the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus is claiming to be God. So here's the cultural context. This is why we, we need to understand, no one made the God thing up about Jesus after Jesus. Jesus claimed to be God. And the context that he did this in is important to understand. Um, what did the Jews believe about God? It's one. Yeah, he is one. Jew, the Jewish culture was the most monotheistic culture. They were one. And these particular Jews existed in what? In what? In a polytheistic culture, the Roman culture. So what do we know about the Roman culture? Roman and Greek gods. Many, 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 many. So when Jesus says, I'm God, we've got to understand this culture that he's in where it's a monotheistic Jewish culture. The Jews have for years resisted the constant barrage of Roman and Greek polytheism. They were unique in that they saw God as one, God as one, God as one. They had the temple that existed. They had the Sanhedrin. They had their own judgment, their own council that existed within a Roman rule. It was kind of a good setup. We'll get to that a few more, uh, in a few more points a little later on. But monotheistic Jewish culture, Jews resisting the constant barrage of Roman and Greek polytheism, 
cultural truth, like culturally, the Jews would have said, there's a great distinction between God, the creator of the universe, and ourselves, creatures in the universe. That would have been common knowledge. The reason I'm stressing this is because it's not common knowledge for us. It is not common in our culture for people to say, yes, there's a creator God, and we are created beings, and there is a big difference between us and him. Our culture is not like that. What's our culture's perspective? Yeah, big man in the sky. How do they view themselves? Righteous? Yeah, master of their own faith. Invictus, that whole thing. Yeah, our, our culture generally views themselves. If they don't know God, and they don't consider God, and they don't even consider that there could be a creator, they won't ever get to the part that they're created, and they will not see a difference between created and creator. So our culture thrives on individualism and thrives on, you know, I'm the captain of my own destiny kind of stuff. And so we have to understand that in this culture, the perspective of a creator God and the created beings that we are and the big difference between us was like common knowledge, common, common knowledge. So when Jesus says, I'm God, that's a pretty thunderous statement in that context. And so it helps us to understand such polarized responses. There are some who were anticipating and saw the prophecy and saw the reality, and they embraced, and there were some who refused to believe it because of the change it would mean for Jews, because of the change it would mean for the nation of Israel, because of the change it would mean for their temple and for their Sanhedrin and for their system and for their existence as a people who exist under the bigger umbrella of Roman rule. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It probably that guy sounds crazy. He's a demon. He's lost his mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, there, there's no way, there was no, there was no plan for that, I mean, that, that wasn't the main point, you, you mentioned that guy, um, our, my family's in the, uh, the family business I was not called to is a big food and spice business, and so they have 
they have, especially for um, their customers, largely in, in New York, um, they have a whole section that has to be kosher. And so they, they actually have a rabbi. Yeah, I, I've, I've shared this before. Some of y'all may have heard it, some of you not. But they have a rabbi who comes in and has to tour the facility. Just side note, this rabbi carries two Glocks under his cloak, which is hilarious. And he goes to my dad's <laughs> office and puts them in his drawer to tour the facility because they're too heavy to walk around with. It's hilarious. Anyway, um, it sounds like a joke, but it, it just happened. And so this rabbi, he and my dad are friends. They, he knows my dad's a Christian. There's, it's, it, there's banter. It's funny. But he, the whole point is he, he makes sure everything that, that their stuff touches is, is kosher. You can't mix it with this. You can't utilize this pallet jack after you've used it on this things with this. And if, if, there's not, if it's not kosher, there's no deal. The, the brokering is done. There's, the product is, is void. We have no interest in it. And it's hard to find people who want kosher product who don't care about kosherness. And so, but he's, he's, he's very fully convinced. I have a, a, a deal that on my computer where I, um, it was a, <laughs> it's terrible, but it was a, a hot dog stand that the guy said it was kosher, but he was serving like pork dogs or something. <laughs> And these Jews found out, and there's a video of it where they get heated because they realize it's pork and they're eating pork. And I mean, these guys are as furious as I've ever seen anybody. And I mean, they they pick up knives like they they grab you, and he goes after him with like the knife that's on the cart. And it was all because it was not according to the law. It was not according to the custom. So I share that. I share those examples to say the dedication to the system that existed was a deep dedication. And so the things that Jesus was saying, in light of, in light of all that, let's read 5.17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Their view of God and the distance between themselves and God was so huge, and it was instilled in them by the law, that if they couldn't see Christ as the Messiah, everything he said sounded like he lost his mind. Does that make sense? I want us to understand this. Like it wasn't just, these guys were idiots and these guys were bright. I don't want to oversimplify this. I want us to understand, if they did not see the fulfillment of the prophecy in Jesus, him stating himself to be the Son of God would have set them off inevitably. And so here, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own, making himself equal with God. And look at 1030. He says, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Then Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works. Kind of what Bill said, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. That was what they thought. He's being blasphemous. For blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They didn't see God's work in his life. They saw him making himself God. And then in 14, 6 through 9, it says, um, 
Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So I want us to understand like how remarkably world-shaking, turn everything upside down, not expected, Jesus' statements would have been to the Jews. It would have been the equivalent, or not even close, but an, like if my dad looked at that rabbi who comes in and says, uh, um, uh, you know, I need to make sure everything's kosher. It's my responsibility, it's my job. And, uh, and if my dad looked at him and said, you know, Jesus forgives a multitude of sins. You don't, you don't need to do the kosher thing anymore. The rabbi would be like, you've lost your mind. What are you talking about? Of course I have to do the kosher thing. There's the law. There's our tradition. There's our, our system. So Jesus saying these things would have been even more um, insane sounding um, if, if they didn't see him for who he was uh, than that statement. The battle for faith was really intense. Um, the Jews had a good system working for them, though they were under Roman rule, and Jesus threatened the system. Look at 1145. I read it a little earlier. But it says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come uh, with Mary and had seen what he had done, believed in him. But some of them sent the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council. This is the, the Sanhedrin. Um, that of the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. I, I, I want you all to also see, they're not calling his signs fake. So there are some who would argue, miracles, come on. That's that you think I'm stupid. The brightest individuals of the time acknowledged the signs he was doing. It's important to understand that because when people talk about miracles and healings and like, come on, that's fable. That's that's ridiculous. The Sanhedrin was the highest of the Jewish councils and they weren't saying this man's acting like he can do signs. They're saying this man is doing signs. So a significant affirmation of the reality of his ability is established when his biggest opponents say he did what he did. Does that, does that make sense? I want us to understand that here. So they said, he's doing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Their concern was high. The stakes are high. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Their concern is that if people really believe this is the Son of God, our Jewish place and Roman rule goes away. They'll take away our place, meaning the temple, and they'll take away our nation, meaning the nation of Israel. So their concern was that this good thing that they had going, being able to have their own judicial system and their own elders and their own priests and their own temple, even though they were under Roman rule, was really good. But if all these people start following Jesus and believe He's in fact the Son of God, all this is going to go away because Rome's going to come and take it away from us because the people don't want it anymore. The people have something better. That is the setting here. So, um, following Jesus meant no longer putting your faith in the law or Judaism or Rome or the approval of man. Look at 1242. It says, um, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. So it wasn't 
It wasn't the less informed people. some Some of the most informed people, many of even the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than they love the glory that comes from God. That's a huge statement. Why were they so worried about the establishment? Because they really liked the glory that came from man. They liked the Pharisees welcoming them. They liked being allowed to have a temple and be in the temple and have a place there. They liked that because they cared about the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from the Father in his Son. So when we see people like a blind man in 938, or Thomas in 2028, or Andrew in 141, or Nathaniel in 149, worshiping Jesus as God, it's a really significant thing. And they worshiped him as God. For anyone to worship him as God was very, very significant in that culture. So we're called to, in John to believe who the Messiah is, and we're called to believe what he came to do. Um, I want us to see, and I'm just going to touch on this briefly for like two minutes, and then we'll close. It's really interesting. What Jesus came to do, the first thing that, and the last thing we'll talk about tonight is Jesus came to expose misunderstanding and disobedience. He came to expose misunderstanding and disobedience. Um, this was clearly modeled in the three Sabbaths that are mentioned in John, and I'm not going to have you turn there for time's sake, but in 721 and then in 914, you see Jesus doing something on the Sabbath, and then they, they're upset about the fact that he heals someone, they collect something, um, the, the 18 years you know, in, a, in a state, and then freed, and they're, up, they're upset because he did it. Not because he did it, but because he did it on the Sabbath. And there's an intentionality. Endeavor notes that Jesus deliberately picked the Sabbath as an opportunity to expose their hypocrisy and jolt them out of their self-righteousness. Jesus did not come to help anyone keep up the pretense of holiness and love. He came to bring the real thing. He didn't come to help anyone keep up the pretense of holiness and love. He came to bring the real thing. And because of that, Jesus very intentionally utilized the Sabbath as a means to show and jolt them, to show the hypocrisy and jolt them out of their self-righteousness. The third Sabbath encounter is the most remarkable one. And we can just see in 1913, just one verse. These two Sabbath encounters were before Jesus was taken into custody. And then in 1913, it's after. Um, or 1931, not 13. I was going to say, this is my big verse I'm ending on, and that's not the one I thought it was. Um, 1931. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. That's the third Sabbath encounter. And there's so much irony wrapped up in this. But what we, what we need to see is, first, we know that none of his bones were broken. When they pierced his side, there was already water. He was already dead. Prophecy was fulfilled and that none of his bones were broken. Prophecy was fulfilled and that his side was pierced. But when they asked this, what they were saying is, hey, the Sabbath is coming, and we really don't want to disobey the Sabbath. Can we break Jesus' legs so that we don't have any dead bodies laying around that we ought to clean up on the Sabbath? Because you can't do that on the Sabbath. Do you see the irony? 
The chief priests were so mindful of the law's obligations, they literally dogged Jesus to death for healing on the Sabbath. And so mindful were they that they cleaned up after their murder that they had committed, Jesus, to avoid ceremonial uncleanness on the Sabbath. Do you see the hypocrisy and self-righteousness that's drawn out in that? Let's clean, let's get rid of the evidence. Let's clean up our murder so that we don't disobey the Sabbath. The Sabbath is this great example through the book of John of how hypocritical and how self-righteous they are. They've murdered Jesus. They want to break his legs to make sure it's all done so that they can clean up the body so they don't have to break the Sabbath law. Massive, massive irony. That he came to fulfill. And also, they did it to avoid their temple being taken. We know how that ends as well. 70 years later. Next week, we're going to look at um, he came to be the light of the world. He came to be glorified by the Father. And we're going to touch on um, why we should believe and the results of believing. Um, Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for our time tonight. Uh, As always, there's a lot left on the table. And so uh, my prayer tonight is that as we sit here and we've gone through this study and we've read a bunch of texts and we've heard truths and we've heard reality and we've even heard the words of Jesus and we've seen the ugliness of unbelief, but we've also gained insight into the context and the culture in which it existed, please convict us with the truth we're supposed to be convicted with. I see the reality that everyone here might need to walk away with something different from this study. So I trust in your power, God. I trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to convict us. And I pray that we would be people who do as you say and think over what's been said so that you will give us understanding in our lives. We love you. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for a Messiah. We thank you for King Jesus, the one who came and fulfilled, who didn't come to condemn the world, but saved the world that had already stood condemned. Lord, as as we see people amazingly believing in him, from the get-go. It's no less amazing that any of us would believe in him 2,000 years later. It shows the the reality and the depth of truth from you, and we're thankful for that. Thank you for causing us to see Christ for who he is when we had eyes that could not see otherwise. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.